Good evening. When uh, Nikki came into church, she saw those words on the screen and she thought they were about, they were for me. I, I, I have to say, I've known a few preachers who are unchangeable. And one or two are unshakable and certainly a few are unstoppable. <laughs> so, we're up to uh, chapter 58 only seems five minutes ago that we were on chapter one. Isaiah chapter 58, nearly at the end, only another eight chapters to go. Good. So, you want to turn to chapter Isaiah 58, the words will come up on the screen, I think, maybe, is the word from the back. Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and have not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why? Have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen, only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed or for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer your cry for help and he will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, Like a spring whose waters never fail, your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. If you keep your feet, feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, 
And if you honour it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord and I will cause you to rise, ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. As always, a a challenging passage. I have to say, with all the, um, the talking about fasting in that passage, I was reminded of a story that I heard uh, recently. In fact, I read it quite recently. And it was about a man who went to see his doctor. Uh, he was somewhat overweight, and the doctor was concerned about this, and he wanted to try and help him to um, bring his weight down. And so he thought, well, what I'll do is I'll suggest to him that he might fast to see if that produced any results. So the doctor said to him, what I want you to do is I want you to eat regularly for two days and then skip a day. And then eat regularly for two days and then skip a day and so on. He said, come back and see me in a fortnight and I reckon you probably might have lost about five pounds. So the man goes off and after two weeks he comes back to his doctor and announced that he'd lost 60 pounds. And the doctor was astonished. This is amazing. Did you, did you follow my instructions? He said, I followed them to the letter. But he said, but every third day I thought I was going to drop dead. And the doctor said, well, was it because of the lack of food? He said, no, it was all that skipping. That's <laughs> that. <laughs> I'll sit down now. <laughs> so there we are. So we're back in the, so we're back in the Isaiah and we're uh, uh, in, as I say, into the final straight of our journey through this uh, wonderful uh, book. And, and as we move now into the last section of the book, chapters 56 to 66 are the last section of the book. Isaiah's prophecy has, has changed its focus again as the refugees are returning from Babylon to Jerusalem. It was a time of great expectation as well as one of great difficulty. These, the people had been in exile for a long time and in that time the Jerusalem that they knew had been left in ruins. It had been inhabited by other people from uh, other lands. So as they return to Jerusalem they see what's happened in their absence and amidst all the jubilation, the euph- euphoria about returning home There were so many things to do, so much practical, political, spiritual things that needed to be sorted out. And so in these last 10, 11 chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah has sought God about how they they move on, how do they deal with these realities. And in these words, he speaks God's word to them. For Isaiah, the first big issue was for the people to see that the restoration, the coming back to Jerusalem, the restoration of Israel was more than just about this group of people returning to Jerusalem. God had much bigger plans than simply having the, the people, uh, his people return from Babylon to Jerusalem. Isaiah saw that it was too easy for them to say that coming home was just it. It was the answer, yes, it was the answer to, to long years of prayer, of seeking God, of, of, 
of pleading with God that they might return home. But it would be very easy for them to, to see that return home, to see that as the answer to all their needs. It was too easy for them to fall into the trap that I think we know so well of not seeing that it wasn't all about them. The problems that caused their downfall and resulted in the exile hadn't gone away. And they needed to deal with that. But they also needed to come to terms with the whole purposes of God. It wasn't just about God bringing them back home. God had been telling them since the time of Abraham that they would be the agents of God's people, God's purposes to save, restore, and renew the whole world. In fact, the whole of creation, the whole of heaven and earth. And so Isaiah in these chapters points us beyond the restoration to Jerusalem to the fulfillment of God's whole promise and purpose. It's easy, in some senses, to be critical. We can just imagine what it would have been like. They just wanted their present ordeal of exile to be over. We can understand that. We've all been in those places, haven't we, where we just want things to end. Whether it's your child to go to sleep and stop screaming or whatever. Whether it's some... some personal sort of trial that you're going through. When you're going through those difficult, when when you go through painful times, it's it's easy to to just see the end of it as the end of it and not look beyond that. And so we can imagine why they would grab hold of the promises of the, the restoration to Jerusalem and make them what they wanted to be They would take hold of them and say, this is what we need. We need just to go back home. Just for the exile to come to an end. But in doing so, they limit God. They can easily sort of localize, even privatize the purposes and promises of God. And we we do the same. I know that uh, it frustrates me sometimes when uh, we reduced the gospel, the good news of the gospel to a, to a very personal one. It's simply about Jesus dying for my sins and he rose again so that I might go to heaven. And we, we can easily say that's the gospel. Jesus died for my sins so that I might go to heaven. Now, in one sense, there's nothing wrong with that because that's what the gospel is. But it's much more than that. Much more than that. Jesus told us to pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The death and resurrection of Jesus wasn't simply about us having our sins forgiven and going to heaven. It was about the coming of the kingdom of God in all its fullness. The time when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. The death and resurrection of Jesus was about the kingdom breaking in and changing things now and forever and looking forward to that final time when Jesus comes again. And all of God's purposes, all of God's promises will become reality. It's more than about just you and me having our sins forgiven and going to heaven when we die. 
for the Israelites, it would have been very easy for them to just grab hold. It's all about us just going home. And so Isaiah wants to say, no, it's more than that. So much more than that. You're part of so much more of what God wants to do. second thing, perhaps, about these chapters is that in some senses the returning Israelites were in a similar, again, a similar situation to where we're at. They were in an in-between time. The promised restoration to Jerusalem had happened. Yes, the the situation had changed fundamentally, but the full reality was into the future. There was the now and not yet of the prophesied restoration of Israel. In the same way that we kingdom, the death and resurrection of Jesus has changed things for wait, the coming of the kingdom in all its fullness. Perhaps the fact that there are some similarities there might mean that these chapters of Isaiah give particular significance. They're God's word to awaiting people, a people living in a restored kingdom that's still in the world. How were they to be in this in-between time? What were they to do? And in this chapter, we got some, pract- chapter, we got some practicals to how, the, how are they live to live with their neighbours? How are they to be God's people when there is rebuilding work that is practical and spiritual? How are they to be amidst the struggle, the opposition, and yet the unfulfilled expectation? Isaiah speaks God's word into that. And we might say that chapter 58 that we're looking at tonight is about some of the spiritual issues. It's about prayer and worship. It's about fasting. Essentially, I think it's about spiritual integrity. The ultimate question is, Does what you say and do in your religious or spiritual life match what you do and say in other aspects of your life? Do you have integrity? Are you just a Sunday Christian or a Saturday Jew? That's what Isaiah is challenging us with. It seems that they start in the right place. Isaiah says, day after day, they seek me out, God says in verse 2. They seem eager to know my ways. But in the next sentence, it raises the questions. They do this as if, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. That was the heart of it. They were apparently doing the right things. As if they had it right but they were doing it, to coin a phrase, in the wrong order. All the right things doing in the wrong order. They were approaching worship, for instance, as if it was about them. They were approaching their fasting as if it were about them. They say to God, why have we fasted? And you've not seen it. So the idea of fasting is that God would see it. Not that it would be making an offering to God. It's that God would see it. I don't know how many of us 
fast. It's not easy because I don't know, most of us don't like being hungry, do we? Um, there was that, uh, is it that Snickers commercial, isn't it? That you're not yourself when you're hungry. And I know lots of people like that. Fasting was about focusing on God, about saying we're going to stop doing these everyday things like eating so that we might focus on God. It's not about them fasting so that God would would see them, but about them fasting so that they can focus on God. If it's done in the right way, it brings us closer to God. They were doing it, though, so that God would reward them, kind of using God like a, you know, like a slot machine, if you like. If I put this in, this will come out. Okay, God, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. I think, I suspect many of us in our lives have done something similar. God, if I do this for you, will you do this for me? And that's how they were approaching fasting and worship. Forgetting it wasn't about them, it was about God. But as I said, that's not what it's all about. What you're doing is not done in selfless love. That which is not done in selfish love is done for selfish ends. And then he says, well, because all your fasting, when your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. Here they were fasting, doing their sort of spiritual exercises, but having a fight. Just going through the motions and forgetting the important things of mercy and grace and love. Isaiah says on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and you exploit your workers. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. God's not like that. Worship's not like that. Their worship, their religion, and particularly their fasting was self-serving and hollow. They were pretending to be righteous while allowing justice to occur, even participating in it. And Isaiah is reminding us that fasting is worship. It's not about going through the motions. It's not about play-acting and fancy shows. It's about how we live in the world. And that's challenging for all of us. How real is our worship? It doesn't matter how often we come to church or how loudly we sing or clap or whether we raise our hands, dance around or whatever. If it's not real. If our lives don't match what we say and what we do. Isaiah says that their worship of God, even their fasting, should make them hungry for something more. 
Make them hungry for, the breaking, for breaking the chains of injustice, of setting the oppressed go free, sharing their food with the hungry, providing the homeless with shelter, clothing the naked and showing compassion. That's true worship. He says that true, the true worship of God will show itself in how we care for the most vulnerable in our midst. Many of us perhaps were here at the, the AGM just a few weeks ago and it was great to hear of all the stuff that we do in our church. You know, the Renew 55, the Connect Cafe, TLG, all that sort of stuff. And that's fantastic. But if we ever saw that as just an extra bit that we do, an add-on, then we'd be getting it wrong. That has to be, that kind of stuff has to be fundamental to who we are. Doesn't it? They're not just things, interesting things that gives us something to do on a Monday morning or a Thursday afternoon. That's about true worship. That's about true fasting, of pouring ourselves out for God, just as Jesus poured himself out for us. It reminds us of those verses, perhaps the most challenging verses in the whole of the New Testament when Jesus says, when when he returns and all the nations are going to be gathered before him and he'll separate the sheep from the goats. And the criteria for judgment? What have you done for those in need? What did you do for the hungry, the thirsty? the homeless, the naked, the physically afflicted, the oppressed, the poor. What have you done for them? And as Isaiah goes on, he doesn't just talk about, he says, it's not just about the strangers and the poor. He says that true worship is about doing away with the yoke of oppression, but it's also about doing away with the pointing finger and the malicious talk. It's not just about the relationship we have with those in need, it's about the relationships we have with each other. Amongst God's people. It's important for us to be reminded of that. I spent this past week up in uh, Yorkshire at a place called Scargo House. It's run by a, a community of people. In fact, it was uh, featured on Songs of Praise about three weeks ago. And uh, it's run by a community of, of people. And we go and join the community for a, a few times a, a week or so, for three, two or three times a year. And uh, people come to that place. And it's open for retreat, for conferences, for gatherings. But essentially, it's a place for hurting people. And we were there this week. And the most difficult thing is, is that the people there that are hurting, yes, some of them are hurting because of things that happened to them or because of sickness or death or and grief and whatever. But the most painful thing is the amount of people are there because of what other Christians and what churches have done to them. It's so painful to listen to painful to listen to. And God says, Isaiah says, God doesn't want that. He says, you've got to put away the malicious talk, the finger pointing. 
You've got to do something about the relationships and keeping those relationships amongst you. I found this uh, quote from Rick Warren. I don't know if you've ever read read The Purpose Driven Life or The Purpose Driven Church. He wrote those things amongst others. He says this, Regardless of the changes in technology, communication and culture, people still have the basic needs. They They need love, acceptance, meaning, purpose, forgiveness, dignity and significance. They struggle, struggle with selfishness, fear, guilt, resentment, worry, boredom, loneliness and other universal problems. And their only solution is Jesus Christ. When the world sees the Christian church loving like Jesus, they want to be part of it. When they see us fighting, quarreling and pointing fingers, they are repulsed and so is God. You do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and the malicious talk, says Isaiah. There is nothing more likely to hold back the work of God than people, the people of God falling out with one another. That's why Paul in his letters implores. He doesn't say, it would be really nice if you could keep the bond of peace between you. He implores the people of God to endeavour to keep the bond of peace between them and the wonderful thing Isaiah says that if we concentrate on loving one another he says then your light will rise in the darkness your night will become like the noonday the Lord will guide you always he will satisfy your needs in the sun scorched land and will strengthen your fame he will, you will be like a well watered garden like a spring whose waters never fail isn't that a lovely picture? Wouldn't it be great if the church, the people saw the church as a well-watered garden? So Isaiah is talking to God's people in this in-between time. What sort of people were they to be? What was to characterize the relationships between, between them? How were they to be with, among, with those among whom they lived? And he challenges them, and he challenges us about prayer and worship about their attitudes, their actions, their relationships. Get it right, he says, and God will bless his people because his kingdom is here amongst us. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, your healing will quickly appear, your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations and you will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Again, wouldn't it be great to be healers, repairers, restorers in our broken and fractured world. It's what God wants to do. It's his plan, his purpose, that the whole creation will be healed, repaired and restored. Not just our little bit of it, but the whole of it. And he wants, he wants his people to capture that vision. When the Israelites returned to Jerusalem, it's hard to imagine what they faced. How could they rebuild? There weren't very many of them. They had very little money or resources. They would have had their moments of despair. Where would they even start? And so Isaiah reminds them and reminds us of the bigger picture, something far greater than we can ever ask or imagine. It wasn't just about now. This was about the great promises of God. In the midst of all that God was going to do, 
they were and we are challenged to start getting things right with God in our attitudes to worship in our relationships with one another because as we are told in verse 14 then will you find joy in the Lord and I will cause you to writhe in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. As always, Isaiah challenges. But as always, there are those wonderful promises of God.